You know, one of the cool things about uh, about being the pastor is that you can choose to have Van Halen uh, precede your message from a, uh, on, a, on a Sunday every now and then. Uh, you know, it's really interesting, that song right now by Van Halen. It came out the day after Valentine's Day in 1992. And what's interesting is, is the source of the song. Van Halen, for those of you who grew up in the late 80s, kind of early to mid-90s like I did, uh, was, I mean, one of the king of rock and roll bands of, uh, of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And they had hit a peak where they said they were, they were tired of writing songs about sex and drugs and rock and roll. And they said, you know, we, we wanted to write an anthem that, uh, that would make a difference. Uh, have you ever had that moment in your life where you've sat around and in your basement or you've been on a trip or maybe you've been sitting on a beach or you've been up in the mountains and, and you've just had a thought that, you know, I just, I'm tired of living life the way that I'm living life. I wish my life could make a difference. Because if you have, today we're going to look at a Bible story in the book of Esther that hopefully will guide all of us to understand not only how we can make a difference, but that as Christians how we're supposed to make a difference. Uh, and I want to start off with a verse that's uh, it's not going to be on your sermon notes. It's not even going to be on the screen because it, really God gave it to me just about an hour uh, before church started. And our ushers are going to come down the aisle. Take your Bibles and go to Second Kings if you have your Bibles with you today. Um, and our ushers are going to come down the aisle. And every Sunday, uh, our ushers pass out Bibles. If you don't, if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible, if you just want a Bible to use today, we, we every Sunday we we get in God's Word, we open it up, we we flip around in it. Uh, we study it. If you don't have a Bible, we, we have been a church now just a, uh, a little over 10 months, and we've given away more than 300 Bibles just like this. We give away Bibles on a Sunday morning. We tell people, if you don't have one, put your name in it. This is your Bible to keep. If you just forgot one uh, and want to use one today, just use this today, and you can throw it on the table when you leave, and you can bring yours next week. Uh, but we'll always get into the Word, and, and we'll study God's Word. But here's what I was praying this morning. In Second Kings chapter 6, uh, I was praying early this morning in my house, and then again on the way to church, uh, my wife and I, for those of you who are brand new, my wife is, is the beautiful blonde, uh, who's one of our worship leaders up here on the stage. Uh, we were riding, and our kids were in the car, Christian, who's 11, my little girl, Casey, who's 8. And every Sunday, we pray on the way to church. Casey prays first, and then Christian, and then Danielle, and then I close us in prayer. And I found myself on the way to church, I prayed the exact same phrase that I prayed early this morning in my basement as I was on my knees praying for church this morning, uh, and I prayed these words, God, just open the eyes of our people today so they'll understand what's going on. Open the eyes of our people so they'll understand the difference that they can, they can make in someone's life. And as I was praying that, uh, God said, you know, Christian, man, you are praying Scripture specifically. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, this is not the focus of our study today, but I want you to see this verse because this is my prayer for you today as, as we start studying God's Word together. And, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can take those sermon notes that you were handed. You can take that pen that you were handed and just write down uh, the, uh, the reference, 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, but Elisha, we, we read a story about a, a guy named Elisha who's a prophet in Israel. And his job not only is to tell Israel what God wants him to hear, but his job is to protect Israel from the enemy. And they were fighting against a country that was named Aram. Uh, and the king of Aram went into his, his, his basically his, his war room one day, and he met with all his top generals, and he said, how come every time we try to go attack Israel, they're ready for us? Uh, we attack them in the mountains, and they know we're coming. And we attack them in the valleys, and they know we're coming. And we attack them in the cities, and they know we're coming. And we attack them out in the country, and they know we're coming. How come every time we try to attack Israel, they know where we're going? And one of his top commanders said they have, a, they have a guy, they have a prophet named Elisha. 
And God tells him uh, what's being said in this room. So every time you make a decision, God tells him, he tells the people, and they go away. And the king says, well, we've got to kill that guy because he's, he's messing up our plans. So they, they, uh, they make a search of the country and say, Where, find Elisha, where is he? So they say he's in a city, he's walled up. So they send their entire army to this city. And they camp out around the city at night and in the city. And the next day, the city wakes up and Elisha wakes up and he's got kind of a young understudy that he's mentoring. They wake up together and they see that they are surrounded by the army of Aram. And they think they're all going to die. And they say, what do we do? And they go to Elisha. And they say, Elisha, what do we do? They're here. Like, you normally tell us when they're coming. You didn't tell us they were coming. They're here. We're all going to die. What are we going to do? And Elisha says, don't worry. I said, what do you mean, don't worry? I said, don't worry. We're fine. I said, what do you mean, don't worry? And Elisha said, look, there's a lot more people fighting for us than there are fighting for them. Don't worry. And they said, we don't understand what you're saying. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, here's what Elisha prayed for those people who were worried that they were going to be killed that day inside this walled city. In 2 Kings 6, 17, Elisha prayed, God, open his eyes so that he can see. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. So the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he looked around and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. My prayer for you today Because at the end of our time together, some of you are going to be like this young servant of Elisha. You're going to say, how am I going to do that? And I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I can't make a difference. And I can't impact anyone. And I can't go tell someone about Jesus. I, I need for you today to not focus on the opposing army. I need your eyes to be open spiritually to the truth that we're going to study in the book of Esther so that you can realize what what we would refer to as the uniqueness of living in the right now, living in the now. When I was in college, a businessman came and spoke uh, to our university one day in an assembly we were having, and he gave us a poem that I've hung on to that day. They actually gave it to everyone in the place. I'm sure you've heard it or some uh, variation of it. But he gave us a little laminated card that I kept in my wallet for years and years and years, and now I I keep it on my computer. Uh, But it's a poem called Only a Minute. How much impact can right now have? I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, I can't refuse it. I didn't seek it. I didn't choose it. But it's up to me to use it. I've got to suffer if I lose it. Give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute. But eternity is in it. It's my goal today to help all of us understand what we can do with our minute, with our right now, with our life right now this week as we seek to try to live for God. And we're going to do that through the story of Esther. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is going to be, if you turn to the Old Testament and you find Psalms, just go back to the left a little bit because we get ourselves in a, in a group of, of books where we see Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra and Job right together. Uh, and then we see the book of Psalms and we see the book of Proverbs. But we read one of the greatest stories in the Bible in the life of a woman named Esther. There are only two books in the Bible named after women. One is Ruth, one is Esther. This is one of those, and it's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. We're in the midst, really on the tail end, of a summer series at our church called Bedtime Stories. And we have just, all summer long, we've been looking at the greatest stories in the Bible, not so that we can hear them, not so that we can learn them, but so that we can ask this this question. What, What do these stories mean to me? Uh, we've looked at the story of, uh, of, of Jonah and the whale, uh, and we learned that that was a lot less about a fish than it was about being hard-hearted spiritually. We looked at Daniel in the lion's den. We've looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I mean, we've looked at the greatest Old Testament Bible stories, Moses in the burning bush, David and Goliath, and we have, 
we have taken those and we've applied them to our life today. And so what can we learn? What are we supposed to do from this truth that we are learning? We do the same thing through the book of Esther as we try to learn the uniqueness of right now. Now, before we jump into Esther chapter 2, where we're going to start, um, let me catch you up to where we are in history. Who is Esther? Where is she? What is she doing? What's, what's the context? What's the background of her story? If you've been here the past few weeks, as we've been journeying through the Old Testament, you have met three weeks ago Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their fiery furnace. You met two weeks ago Daniel in the lion's den. Both of those narratives happened. Just to real quickly catch you up historically, Israel had a civil war. David, who killed Goliath, the greatest king of Israel, and his son Solomon ruled over Israel for 80 years. And for 80 years, Israel was one, and they were a great nation. They were a powerful nation. They were well-recognized in the world, and they had a civil war that split them north and south. I was teaching our students about this in student ministry this morning. And, and the northern part of the country kept its name, just very much like the United States in our civil war. The, the northern country remained Israel. The southern half changed its name. The United States of America, the southern half, they, they changed to the Confederate States of America. They were the Confederacy. The southern states of Israel, they changed their name to Judah. And we see that Judah was conquered by a country uh, known as Babylon. It's in modern-day Iraq, uh, where uh, literally Baghdad would have been the capital of Babylon. So just geographically, so it lays out. And Babylon came, and they, they conquered Israel. And the people that they didn't kill... They basically put them in handcuffs and they drug them all the way back to Babylon. Babylon eventually got conquered by Persia. Persia is modern-day Iran. And they took all the people who were in Babylon and then they took them to Persia. So there were hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who had been first taken from their home in Israel and sent to Babylon. And then their children and their grandchildren were once again captured and taken from now Babylon to Persia, and about 50 years before this story is written, after being in captivity for 70 years, the, the king of Persia said that, look, if you're a Jewish person, you can go home. Uh, we realize you were in Babylon for 70 years, and now you've been here for another decade or so. You, you, anyone who wants to go home, anyone from Israel, you can go home. You can leave. You don't have to stay here. We'll give you money. We'll pay your airfare. We'll pay your meals on the way there. We'll give you money to build your houses when you get back. You can put the walls back up around your city. You can start building your temple. The, the king of Persia gave them all this money, gave them all the freedom and said, go home, get out of here. You can leave. But not all the Jews went. Some stayed. Those who stayed were not very well thought of by the people who went back to try to reestablish the country. But if, if you would rather live in a third world country than a developed country, a developed city like Persia would have been, um, then you, you can understand the, the problem. You No one wanted to go home to poverty. They would rather stay there. And we meet a woman in this book named Esther who had stayed for some reason 50 years earlier, and, you, and if you remember the name 50, you can remember, 50 years earlier, 50,000 Jews decided to go home. The rest stayed. Esther, her uncle Mordecai, some family, they decided not to go home. They stayed, and we find that in the wrong place, at the right time, God used Esther. Now, I want you to hear what I said, because some of you, the first thing you need to deal with today is you need to deal with being in the wrong place in life. Because some of you are in here today and say, you're saying, you know, I, I, Christian, I would love to be used by God, but I have the wrong job. And I would love to be used by God, but, uh, you know, I, I, um, I'm in the wrong marriage. Or I would love to be used by God, but, Christian, we, you know, our house got foreclosed on and now we're living in an apartment. You, as you sit here today, you look at your life and you're in the wrong place. 
you are not where you thought you would be a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. If you could have written the master plan for your life of where you would be on August 5th, 2012, you're in the wrong place. And some of you, that's your biggest spiritual obstacle is, is you have not been able to get over being in the wrong place. And what we learn from Esther is that you can be in the wrong place at the right time and still be used by God. If you will embrace where you're at and just start living for God and moving forward, God can use you. Even though you think you're in the wrong place, God can use you exactly where you are. So today the question is not, you know, why, why in the world am I here at this point in my life, why am I starting over at 40? That, you know, why, why am I at 50 and I don't have a husband or I don't have a wife? You know, why am I at 35 just starting a new career? Why am I going back to school at 28? Why, why, why? The question is not why, why, why am I in the wrong place? The question is, this is the place I'm in. How can God use me here? That's the question this morning. I'm here. How can God use me here? And as we get into the book of Esther, we learn some things about Esther But we also learn them about ourselves of how God can use us right now. Esther chapter 2 verse 2, we learn first that even if you're in the wrong place, Esther was in the wrong place. But Esther was a unique person. She was in the wrong place at the right time. And God was able to use her. In Esther chapter 2, if if I were to read all of Esther chapter 1, I won't. uh, But basically the the king of Persia uh, had conquered Egypt. That was their biggest nemesis at the time. They had already conquered Babylon. They, they conquered Egypt. Uh, and literally, they went on a six-month drinking binge uh, in the capital of their country. Um, and they, just, they, they, they partied like it was 1999. I mean, for six months, like they just had the most raucous party that you can imagine. And it's given to us in great detail in Esther chapter 1, what, how it was decorated, what they were drinking. They were all using golden cups. I mean, six months, six months of, of being in a, in, a, in a Beverly Hills frat house ended with um, one of the king's buddies talking to him about how good-looking his wife was. He said, hey, you should call the queen and show all the guys how good-looking she is. And basically, he, he called his queen and said, hey, I want you to come here and strip for all my friends so they can see how good-looking you are. Now, we think of that and you think, that is crazy. It is crazy. Uh, but that's the story presented to us in Esther chapter 1. So he calls the king and says, hey, come out here. I want to show you to all my friends. And uh, she said no. She was having her own party with her sorority. And they decided that, you know, it, it, that, that they were not going to be told what to do by a man. So she said, no, I ain't coming. And in just humiliation, he asked his advisors, what, what, do, I, what do I do? Um, and someone said, you should kill her. He said, oh, if, you, if you kill her, there'll be a revolt. You can't kill her. And someone said, well, you can't be married to her anymore. You've got to banish her from being your wife and replace her so that women everywhere don't begin to tell their husband, no, I'm not telling you my personal, uh, the way that I run my life, Danielle, you, you're free to say no anytime you want, sweetheart, because you were in charge. Um, but uh, in Esther chapter 1, she said no. So he said, okay, that's a good idea. So he banished her and said, what are we going to do for a queen? They said, have a beauty contest. Get all the most beautiful women from all over the world. Uh, give them all a spa day for a year. And at the end of a year, pick one. And you can have a, a new wife. And they said, call the women from all over. Just, just tell them, we need the most beautiful women from all over the kingdom to come and, and be a part of your harem because you're going to choose a new wife. And we find out that Esther was in a, a, a very unique person that fit the mold of who the king was looking for. And Esther 2.2, 2, here's, here's what it says. 
the king's personal attendants proposed to him, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Now, Esther was a very unique person. The Bible tells us she was a beautiful young virgin living in Persia at the time this edict was ordered. She was a unique person that, that fit the mold of what God needed done. Now, some of you are sitting here today and say, Christian, this has absolutely zero application to me. I'm not a beautiful young virgin available to the king of Persia. No, but I, I didn't say you're a unique young virgin. I said you're a unique person. Do you know that the Bible says that you are a unique person handcrafted by God? Do you understand that? The Bible says that you are a unique person that has been handcrafted by God. You say, Christian, where does the Bible say that? Let me give you some verses. They're not going to be on the screen. They're not going to be on your sermon notes. You have to jot them down. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 says that God intricately wove you together in your mother's womb. He created every part of your being. And Psalm 139.16 says, He thinks about you more than there are sand on the seashore. You're a very unique person, uniquely made by God. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says that while God was in the creative process of creating you in the womb, He told Jeremiah, Before I knew you, I formed you in the womb. And while I was forming you in the womb, I called you to serve a purpose. So not only were you uniquely created, you have been uniquely called by God, to, to live for God, to do something. You say, well, Christian, I, you know, that might be nice, but my, I really haven't lived for God all my life. I haven't lived for God any of my life. I've been away from God recently. God might have created me. God might have had a purpose for me. But, Christian, I have blown it, and I'm in the wrong place right now. Do you know that Matthew 10.30 says that right now today God knows the number of hairs on your head. He loves you so much. For those of you who are bald, he might know the number of hairs on your arms or legs or whatever makes you feel really important. Um, but the Bible says God knows the number of hairs on your head. And he gave that verse in Matthew 10 as a reference to how much he loves people and cares about people. God was trying to convince people that I care about you more than you even know yourself. Have, have any of you ever gone to a salon and, and seen all the hair on the floor? Can you imagine count, how long would it take you to attempt to count how many hairs or on your head. So I haven't lived for God. I haven't fulfilled my purpose. I haven't done what God's wanted me. It, that doesn't matter. I'm talking about right now. Right now, God says, I care about you so much that I, I know you so intimately. I know the number of hairs you have on your head. Let me go a step further to show you how much God cares about not just your physical body, but your soul. Psalm 56.8 says that God knows the number of tears that you have cried in your lifetime. That is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Psalm 56, 8, the psalmist said, you have put my tears in a bottle and you have recorded every one of them in your book. Every time you fell down as a little kid and skinned your knee and cried, God saw it, he knew it, he recorded it. Every time you've been disappointed in your career or in your family or in your marriage or with your job, every time your heart has been broken, God has noticed and Psalm 56, 8 said he has written it down in his journal. Why? So he can send comfort in those moments. See, your wrong place today may be a place that God has written in his journal because he has planned to meet you here. He knows the tears you cry at night. He knows the number of hairs on your head. 
He remembers when he formed you in your mother's womb. He remembers when he called you and had a purpose for you. And maybe you've not got there yet, but maybe today he's ready for you to get on that road for his purpose. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. That's where the Bible says that God has plans for our life. And those plans are to prosper us, not to harm us. They're plans of hope and a future. You know, how many people in the world today need hope? God says, my plan for your future is hope. Man, is hope not one of the greatest feelings in the world? Remember the feeling of hope when you ran downstairs on Christmas morning and you were a kid? The excitement that something was going to be there, the, the nervous anxiety of did Santa Claus bring me anything? Is it going to be under three? I mean, we know living in the feeling of hope, right? Yet Proverbs says hope deferred. What's that mean? When hope, when hope isn't fulfilled, it makes the heart sick. Some of you used to live with an, with a, with an ideal of hope. You used to hope for the perfect marriage, the perfect kids, the perfect job, the perfect life. And that hope was delayed, 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 where it became deleted. And now your heart is sick. But God says you were created for him. You were made for him. He loves you. He has a purpose for your life. He knows where you've been hurt and bruised and scarred. And you are a unique person that he wants to use. You know, I, I, um, I love the sun and the moon and the stars because of what they communicate spiritually. I love going outside on a beautiful, clear night and seeing the moon and seeing the stars. I love being outside when the sun is rising. Why? Because of what the Bible says about them. The Bible says that God created every star and he called it by name. The Bible says that he holds stars in their place. And every time I see the stars and I realize they're still there, do you know if you go back to the most ancient written history, the hieroglyphics in the caves in ancient Egypt, that you see... Uh, inscriptions of the exact same constellations in the sky that have always existed. And you look at them and realize that the first person who was able to see and write actually carved these on a wall, and they haven't changed one bit in four, six, eight thousand years. I think, man, God must be really good at holding things in place that put their trust in him. You know, God said, the day the sun ceases to rise, you can believe that I won't fulfill my promise. That's what God said in the Old Testament. My promise to you is as sure as the sun. What was he saying? You you didn't wonder this morning if the sun was going to come up. You You just counted on it. You knew it was. And every day the sun rises, it reminds me that God's promises to me are true. You are a unique person created for a unique time to be used by God. You're a unique person. And we see that Esther, like us, was not only a unique person, but she was in a unique position. She was in a position, wrong place, wrong time, no, wrong place, right time. She was in a very unique position that allowed her to exist. And I want you to write these two words down. That allowed her to exist in relationship and in influence. And what you need to understand today is that God has placed you in the unique positions of relationships What's that mean? The people in your life that are in your life are unique to you probably in your relationship with them. And an influence. You have certain influence over people from your spouse to your kids to people you work with to people you work for to maybe people who work for you to neighbors to, uh, you know, to to relatives. You're You're in unique relationships that give you influence. 
And we see that this is the position that Esther found herself in. In Esther chapter 2, verse 17, we see that the year-long beauty pageant happened, and the king, for a year, you know, tried out women from all over the world. And when he got to Esther, he chose her. And God put her in a unique position of having relationship and influence with the king. In verse 17, it says this, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor. And approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti. That was the wife who refused to come strip for his friends. Verse 18, and the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. She was put in the unique position of having relationship and influence with someone. Now, I won't ask you to write down the names of people who God has given you relationship and influence with. But as a Christian who desires to make an impact right now, our mind has to be focused on people we have relationships with and people we have influence with that might need Jesus in their life. Because here's what we find as we look in Scripture. When awareness meets a need... We have the opportunity to step in right now and do something about it. Esther, an awareness was created for Esther, as we're going to learn in a minute, of a need that only she could fulfill, and she stepped in and she fulfilled it. When you look at Moses, you know, Moses is one of the greatest stories in the Bible, but, you know, you you ask yourself, why would God choose Moses to do what God called Moses to do? And for those of you who weren't familiar, uh, Moses was a baby who was ordered to be killed. He wasn't killed. He was instead kidnapped by the royal family. Of, uh, of, of the country of Egypt where his parents were actually slaves. Until the age of 40, he was raised as an Egyptian with all the privileges of being a son of the king. And at the age of 40, he got mad at someone. He killed him. He ran away. And at the age of 80, he's a farmer. He's hanging out in the field. And God sees a need that Israel needs help. And he sees Moses. And he says, Moses can help. Why? Because Moses was a great leader? No. Because Moses was in a unique position. You know, Moses was probably one of the only people in the world who was completely fluent in both Egyptian and Hebrew languages. You know, Moses was probably one of the only human beings in the world at the time who was completely understanding of both the Hebrew and the Egyptian culture because he was raised in the Egyptian palace by his Hebrew mother. See, we look, Moses was in a unique position of having skills, having things inside him having history that allowed him to be used by God. You are in a unique position. Listen to me. The place that you live, the place where you work, the people you work out with if you go to a club, the school that you teach at or you're a principal at, the place where your kids go to school, the sports teams that your kids play on, you are in a unique position in relationships of influence with people People that, if you would open your eyes, that's my prayer for you today, that you'll open your eyes. People that, if you would open your eyes, you would realize there, there are needs. There are people whose family members are dying. There are marriages falling apart. There are kids in trouble. There are people sick. There are people losing their jobs. If we would open our eyes, we would see, holy cow, I am in this unique position of relationship and influence where this person is hurting, and I can do something about it. Right now, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, right now, I'm in a position of relationship and influence to do something right now. 
You know, you have a better opportunity to impact someone in your family than I do, even as a pastor of this church. Because I don't live in relationship and influence with everyone in your family. Do you know you have people who work where you work who are hurting, who you have more ability to help spiritually than I do because I don't have relationship and influence with those people? Do you know for those of you who are teachers that you have a thousand times more influence spiritually on the kids who go to your school than any youth pastor in the history of the world will because you have relationship and influence with those people. And if we will for just a minute quit complaining about being in the wrong place and just see it as our place and open our eyes to the uniqueness of that position and see some needs, then God can use us to meet those needs right now. See a need, meet a need. It's, it's basically that basic. Most of us don't see it. So Esther was a unique person. We are unique people spiritually. Esther was in a unique position. All of us are in a unique position spiritually. Esther, because she saw a need, was presented with a unique possibility. And you and I this morning are being presented with a unique possibility because we are hearing that if we will open our eyes, that God has created us and placed us in positions of influence where we can make a difference. And if we understand that, our eyes are open to unique possibilities that allow us to be world changers. In Esther chapter 4, here's what's happened between Esther chapter 2, 17, where we've just read, and Esther chapter 4. There's a guy in the king's court. Man, it seems like this guy's friends are always getting him in trouble. First, they want his wife to come strip. Now, you've got another one who doesn't like Esther. This, this king obviously needs new friends because he's going to mess everything up between this guy and, and his wife's plural, which sounds weird to say, but that, that's the story that, uh, that we're in in Esther. In Esther chapter 2, there's, there's a man named Haman who's buddies with the king who has a long history with the Jews. His great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy was killed by someone else's great-great-great-great-granddaddy, and they were Jews, and he hates the Jews, and he wants to see the Jews annihilated. He is just one of many Hitlers in the Bible who wants to see the Jews killed off forever and ever and ever. And he doesn't know that the king has married a Jewish girl because she hasn't let that be known. And he has someone in the city who's Jewish who he doesn't like, so he goes to the king and says, listen, I've got an idea. These people that uh, Cyrus sent back to Israel, he let them build their walls and he let them build their temple. And like he gave them traveling money, paid their airfare and bought them food along the way. And you, you know, these people said, yes, yeah. listen, they will never serve you. They'll never love you. They're going to serve their God. They're going to do their thing. You should kill them all. And the king said, okay, you know, how that decision can be made that carelessly, who knows. But he's like, all right, write it up and we'll do it. So the guy writes up a decree that on this day of this month, we're going to kill all the Jews without knowing that his wife is a Jew. King passes it, they declare it, and Jews all over the world live in fear. And Esther finds herself with a very unique possibility in Esther chapter 4. And here's how the text is given to us. When Mordecai, that's Esther's uncle, who was the Jew that Haman hated and wanted dead, learned of all that had been done that the Jews were sentenced to be killed, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Listen, every time in the Old Testament you hear sackcloth and ashes, that's the, that's the funeral suit. That's the black suit that we wear to a funeral. Those were, his, those were his mourning clothes. Everyone would know something really bad had happened in his life. He went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Nobody's allowed to make the king sad ever. Verse 3, in every province... 
to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs, those are the guys that work for her, and her female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent her clothes for him to put on, his, to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. So Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Verse 7, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said, so she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials... And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches a king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. You need to underline this next part. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Her uncle said, listen, Esther, who knows that maybe you weren't created in life and put in this unique position for this possibility to be a savior to hurting people. Let me ask you a question, especially for those of you who think you're in the wrong place in life right now. Who knows if maybe God hasn't put you right where you are, where you live, where you work, where your kid goes to school, in the relationships and influence. Who knows if God hasn't put you right in the middle of that for some need that needs to be met. Listen to me. This week. For some friend that is hurting that you know about and you think about often, but you've never even sent them a text message to say, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you and praying for you. If you want to go have a cup of coffee, we can do that. See, often we're aware kind of of possibilities, but we don't think it's our role to do anything about them. And Esther became aware of what was going on and she told her uncle, you know, yeah, I get it, but I don't know that I can do anything. And her uncle said, listen, maybe the only reason you're alive is to do something. Maybe God brought you here to do something. You know, last night at Faith and Family uh, Night at, uh, at Kaufman Stadium with the Royals, I listened to Josh Hamilton share his testimony and talk about what Jesus had done in his life. And, I, man, I just soaked that up. And I thought, man, this God has brought this guy through so much. And he understands now that it's his place if, if you if you follow the news carefully, Josh Hamilton is having the worst two months of his baseball career. He's playing terrible. It's his free agent year. They thought he was going to sign a $250 million contract, and they're saying now maybe he'll get a third of that. I mean, he's playing terrible right now. He's on the road. These are not even his home fans. This is not even his home stadium. Yet he understands the possibility that he had, that people want to hear him talk. So after a game that he didn't play well in last night, I think he went one for four, one for five, 
He comes out of the stadium to talk to people and tell them what Jesus has done in his life. He understands the unique position he's in, the possibility that he has to influence people when he tries to influence them. Have any of you been watching the, uh, the Olympics the past, the past week and a half? Did you see little Gabby Douglas from the United States win the all-around gold along with our women's gymnastics team who won the all-around gold? Did you hear her in an interview immediately begin to talk about how God had blessed her and how she wanted to return praise and how she then began to tweet and put on Facebook all these verses and scripture references about God and her life? See, a unique position was met with a unique possibility to talk to the world. And she told him about Jesus. And some of us think, man, if I was Josh Hamilton, I would... Like, I would tell everyone about Jesus. If I was Gabby Douglas, I would tell everyone about Why would you think you would tell everyone the world about Jesus if you were Josh Hamilton or Gabby Douglas when, when you won't tell your neighbor what Jesus is doing in your life? Or you won't talk to someone in your work about what Jesus is doing in your life? See, we, we've got these possibilities, and we say, well, if I was them, then I would. And the fact is, we haven't told one person much less the world, what Jesus has done. We are unique people in unique positions with unique possibilities to make a difference, but we have to speak up to do something. Esther's uncle said, are you going to do anything? And she said, I don't know what I can do. And he said, you have to understand you can do something. You can do something. You have a friend who, whose marriage is falling apart right now? Why don't you go to their house and pray with them? If someone who, who is hurting or sick in your life right now, why don't you call them and tell them you're thinking about them? Do you know someone who's, whose marriage or their kids or something in their life is falling apart and you're watching them hurt day after day after day? You just tell they're hurting. Why don't you invite them to church? Why don't we open our eyes to the possibilities that exist for us to talk to people about Jesus? Because we're unaware. Our eyes are closed. Say, why are our eyes closed, Christian? It's not because we're bad people. I've really been thinking about this and praying about this specifically this week. Why aren't more Christians making a difference? Why don't more of us live with our eyes open? Why aren't more of us seeing needs and meeting needs? And it came to me this week in, in Branson while I was on vacation with my family. I mean, I, I literally had this entire message done while struggling with this one question. God, why aren't more people doing more? And God spoke it right into my heart as I looked at Esther chapter 4, 4.13. And here's what was said in Esther chapter 4.13. I want you to see two words. I'll start in verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, her words were, listen, I don't know how this is going to impact me. I understand the rest of the world is going to die, but I don't know how this is going to impact me. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house that you alone, circle those words, you alone. Highlight those words, you alone. Underline them. Do something to make them stand out. Don't think that because you're in the king's palace that you alone of all the Jews will escape. Why aren't more people doing more? Why are our eyes not open to needs? It's not because we don't care. It's not because we don't think we can make a difference. It's because, number four, all of us are living with what I would call an ordinary preservation of self. And I say it's ordinary because it's, it's, it just is what it is. Unfortunately, most of us think of ourself first 
And we all have so many problems that we, we don't have time to think about others second or third or fourth. And let me tell you how this came to me. Uh, how many of you have kids between the ages of 10 and 15? Raise your hand. How many of you every now and then have moments where you don't like those kids between the ages of 10 and 15? I had a moment like that this week, right? My, my family, the last week of July, we always go on vacation. We celebrate my son's birthday. Christian turned 11 on, on July 31. And, uh, and we were at Silver Dollar City. And we were riding rides and playing games and doing what you do at an amusement park. And the, and the park was open later. It was open till 10, so you had these late hours. And I realized, I, I just had a moment. I mean, a, a typical 11-year-old kid, he didn't do anything wrong, but he frustrated me because I realized everything we did uh, was not enough. We played one game, he wanted to play two. We rode one roller coaster, he wanted to ride another one. We rode another one, then he wanted to ride them all twice. Nothing was good enough. Have you ever had this happen with your children? That like you've paid some of your hard-earned money to go to stupid silver dollar city when it's 110 degrees to make them happy? You know what I'm talking about? And all they want to do is complain? Like you just want to say, listen, I'll ride the roller coaster with you and just throw them off. It's like right, right in the top loop, just see you later. I mean, you know, so I'm having this moment. It's 10 o'clock. We're walking out of the park. I mean, we're exhausted. We've ridden all these rides. I don't even like roller coasters. They give me a headache. And, you know, he's like, you know, as we're walking out of the park, he is saying after a full day of fun, well, why couldn't we have ridden one more time? And I just thought, if you weren't my child, I'd punch you in the face. I mean, that, that is how I feel right now. I just want to, like, what is wrong with you? Nothing is good enough for my kid. And for like a day or two, I, I str- like in my heart, I struggled. Man, what is wrong with my son? I, you know, I was just I was burdened by it. And halfway through our trip, you know, I'm, I'm like a lot of you. I, you know, I, I save all year long to go on vacation. I save up my rewards points, and I've got different rewards points at different hotels. So, like in the middle of the week, we had to switch hotels so we could stay longer. In our first hotel, we were on the first floor. And every day of that trip, I had been kind of complaining because we couldn't set our towels. Like, we take our towels to the pool, they get wet. And, like, we couldn't set them out. So I thought, if we set them out, someone will take them because, like, we don't have a balcony. And, and I made at least once a day, made the comment, man, I hate being on the first floor. can't believe we're on the first floor. In, in the middle of this trip, we, we switched hotels on a day that was, like, 110. And some of you are like me. When you go on vacation, like, your wife packs everything in the house as if you're never going to return. Is anybody like that? Like, Danielle can go for an overnight and need a U-Haul. And, I, you know... <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. Um, so I'm lugging all this luggage to the car, and I'm sweating profusely, and it's 110 degrees, and I'm having a bad attitude. And we get to our next place, and we check into our next place, and they have us on the second floor at a place that doesn't have an elevator. So I'm lugging bag after bag after bag up the stairs. I'm sweating, and I'm angry. My selfish little son won't help me carry stuff. I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm having a bad attitude. I'm upset. And I make the comment as I'm lugging Danielle's 70-pound suitcase up the stairs. I thought, why do they have to put us on the stupid second floor? And at that moment, God spoke to me and said, are you going to complain about everything? And here was my thought. I thought, I sound like a grown-up version of my son. And God said, No. He sounds like a younger version of you. I thought, all right, God, you got my attention. You see, I, I was having a you alone moment. I was focused completely on me. And man, I mean, it like crushed my heart. I thought, man, how, you know, how can I do this? I'm on vacation. 
I'm complaining about switching hotels and what floor I'm on. I mean, am I just the worst person in the world? I, I mean, God has been so good to provide this. You know, what is wrong with me? I got really depressed that day because, you, know, you know, I went from being mad at Christian to being mad at myself. I just thought, man, I, I'm, just, I'm a jerk. You know, we were headed to dinner that night, and I'd been kind of quiet all day. And Danielle's like, you know, where do you want to eat? And, you know, I, I, and I, had, I was like at a place of such surrender. I was like, you know, I don't care. Like, I'm going to be happy with anything. You know, I don't, I don't care. Like, God's really moving in my heart. She's like, oh, so after being a jerk all day long now, you don't even have an opinion. And I was like, listen. <laughs> listen. It's like God's moving in my heart, so just shut up and pick a place, okay? <laughs> Having a moment here spiritually. Man, trying to grow spiritually. So you pick. By the way, every time I share these stories, Danielle yells at me because she thinks that y'all are going to think she's, she's, every fight we have is my fault. None of them are her fault. I, I was being a jerk. So just to let, don't ever think poorly of Danielle. It's always my fault. But I was having a you alone moment. And it hit me. I mean, it hit me square in the face. The reason most people don't open their eyes to the needs of others is because we're, we're not consistently in our minds having our needs met. And until we are taken care of, we don't have time for anyone else. Yet the Gospels is the exact opposite. The Gospel is always looking out. The Gospel is always looking for someone else that could help. Listen, Esther had a valid point. I don't know how this is going to impact me. I could be killed. And her uncle's like, listen, you're going to die either way. Maybe you can help someone else. Listen, I know your week is busy this week. You may hate your job. Your marriage may be struggling. You may be struggling with your kids. But that's going to happen regardless of whether or not you open your eyes and help someone else too. So why not become aware of a need that as a unique person and a unique position with a unique possibility can make a difference right now? You know, I'm going to ask you to pray with me in just a minute, but I, I want to end by saying this. Perhaps someone invited you to church this week because their eyes were open to your hurt, your need. And maybe you've come to this church today and, and the goal of your church service today is not to go and help anyone else meet their need. But maybe today you came and this is your first encounter with church, with God, with Jesus. Today your first step spiritually is to give God your heart. He made it in the first place. Really we give it back to him. And we say, God, I accept your plan for my life. I accept your love in my life. Man, I'll try to follow you the best that I know how. If you've never done that, I'm going to invite you to pray with me today to become a Christian. And then after that, I'm going to invite all of us to give God those things that are keeping us preoccupied with us. And then I'm going to ask you to leave focused on others. And maybe before you even drive out of the parking lot to make a phone call, to send a text, to go to someone's house this afternoon, to be aware all week long of the needs of others and how you can step in right now and make a difference. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And with every head bowed and every eye closed in this moment of silence, the first need that any person needs to have met in their life is to have our relationship to the God of the universe restored because we were created to know God, to love God, to follow God. But some of us are kind of like Esther and Mordecai. And, and if we were to be honest today, 
we feel like we're in the wrong place in our life. This is not where we expect it to be at this juncture of our life. The first step to getting back on the right path is to give your heart back to God and say, okay, God, I accept your love, your forgiveness, your plan for my life. I will follow you. If you've never done that, say, Christian, how, how, do, how do I do that? You say a prayer. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart, Jesus died from your sin and God raised him from the dead. If you confess it with your mouth, you'll, you'll be saved. You'll be changed. So today, if you've never given your life to God and you want to become a Christian by giving your heart back to God, you can pray this prayer. You say, Christian, I don't know how to pray. You, listen, I will pray it. You can say it after me. And you don't even have to say it out loud. You can just say it in your heart. God hears the prayers of your heart with your head bowed and your eye closed. Nobody's looking around. Nobody has to hear this prayer but God. But if this is the desire of your heart today to become a Christian, just pray this prayer. Dear God, today I need you in my life. I want to give my heart back to you. And I want to ask you to forgive me for the sin in my life that's dirtied it up a little bit. And Lord, I ask that you would clean up my life and that you would lead me in your plan for my life. And I commit today, though it won't be easy, I commit today to follow you. Come into my heart today, Lord. Become the God of my life. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, please nobody looking around, if you just prayed that prayer today to become a Christian, would you just lift your hand up so that, so that I can know and thank God for you for the decision that you made? Just all over this place, just lift your hand up and you can put it right back down. You don't have to hold it up long. Now I want to pray for those of you who might be a little you alone focused today. And I don't have a prayer for you to say or anything, but if you're here today and maybe you've not been serving others and loving others because you've been preoccupied with self, you need to do what I did. Tuesday down in Branson. First, you need to confess that to God. Say, God, forgive me for being so self-aware. Help me to get my eyes off myself and on other people. And God, meet my needs that, uh, that are causing me to be distracted. Just pray that prayer in your own words right where you are. You don't have to pray it out loud. Just in your heart. And then finally, here's my prayer for our church today. And I want everyone to pray this one out loud after me. Pray this prayer. Dear God, open my eyes so that I may see the needs that I can make a difference in. Now, God, you have heard our prayer this morning, so on behalf of everyone here, Lord, Open our eyes that we may see the needs, the unique people you've created us to be, the unique position you've put us in, the unique possibilities that we have to make a difference, and that we will step away from ourselves to someone else and make a difference in their life. I love you. We ask all these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said this morning together, amen. I'm going to ask you right now.